Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership. I'm Eric Anderson, the Deputy Director of the program, and I have the privilege of introducing our distinguished guest. Sally Jewell is a respected leader in the private and public sector. As a business executive and public servant serving as Secretary of the Interior under President Obama, Sally Jewell has focused her career on supporting a robust economy coupled with long-term sustainability of our natural world and its diverse people. During her tenure, Secretary Jewell was recognized for taking the long view using a science-based collaborative approach to natural resources management. She and her team rebuilt a trusting nation-to-nation -nation relationship with indigenous communities in the U.S. They champion the importance of science and sharing data to better understand our Earth's systems. They supported development of the commercial scale renewable energy of public lands and waters and encouraged investment for more sustainable use of water in the West. Additionally, she and her team worked with Congress and President Obama on long-term conservation of our nation's most vulnerable natural, cultural, and historic treasures. Prior to serving in President Obama's cabinet, Secretary Jewell was President and CEO of REI, a $2.6 billion retailer dedicated to facilitating outdoor adventures. Before that, she served 19 years in commercial banking and began her career as an engineer in the energy industry. Currently, Secretary Jewell is serving as a resident fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics. Before I turn the session over to today's interviewer, Gina McCarthy, Professor of Practice of Public Health in the Department of Environmental Health and the Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency from 2013 to 2017, Please join me as we welcome Sally Jewell to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Hi, Sal. Hi, Professor. Welcome. <laughs> wow, <laughs> Professor McCarthy, that's got a nice I ring know. to it. Have you learned how to say Harvard yet? Harvard. There we How's go. That? You get it. Keep practicing. You'll be all right. <laughs> Hey, listen, it's, it's great to have you here because this is really all about working with the students who you know are incredible here. Mm -hmm. And I assume you're enjoying your time at the IOP. I'm loving the students. They are incredible. I'm learning so much from them, which is part of what I hope to do. Well, one of the reasons why it's, it's great to have you here is you had, you know, a pretty circuitous path to getting to DOI. And, and I was looking at the web page and I realized that you're the second out of 52 secretaries at DOI that w are women. Mm -hmm. Now, it's clearly not a women's world. <laughs> why DOI and how did you get there? Well, you know, I just walked down the halls and saw all those different facial hairs and outfits, <laughs> you know, over the course of time and I thought we need to change this. No, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that my path was not linear and uh, I had no idea what a Secretary of the Interior was when I was the age of many of the students, the undergrads that I'm uh, interacting with at the Kennedy School. I think the first um, Secretary of the Interior that I became aware of was James Watt and that was not a good impression. Um, in fact, I was still working to undo some of the things that he did by sort of opening up uh, the entire United States to oil and gas and mining activities, letting leases in very sensitive areas that are still in some cases out there. So that was when it first came on my radar and um, that wasn't when I was an engineer in the uh, oil and gas industry working for Mobile Oil. It was actually when I became a banker that I became aware of the position. It never was on my radar. Public service wasn't on my radar, at least working for government. It hadn't even occurred to me. But as I um, 
look through my career and sort of what led President Obama and his team to tap me for this role, it had to do not with the things that I've been paid to do as a professional. It had to do with the things that I've not been paid to do as a volunteer and as a public servant in the context of working as a volunteer in so many different organizations. And I'd say that some of it had to do also with just learning from the people that I met along my journey. Um, there's one particular man, his name is Jim Ellis, he's now 96. And I started working with him as a volunteer in, uh, in a, an environmental organization called the Mountains to Sound Greenway Trust that said, if we have this ribbon of asphalt, known as I-90, that runs from my hometown to yours, uh, at least while we're here in Boston, let's make sure that it doesn't um, become sort of a magnet for uncontrolled development through an, a natural area that's just spectacularly beautiful. So he was 69 when we started that, and I was 35. And he asked the president of the bank that I work for to join on his board, and the president said, well, I'm too busy, but there's this young whippersnapper that seems to <laughs> like the environment and things. Why don't you try her? <laughs> I say the story of Jim as a mentor because Jim uh, fought in World War II and he lost his best friend and his younger brother in World War II, Bob. And he was very angry when he came back from the war. He went through law school and his wife said, why don't you, instead of being angry, why don't you channel your energy into something that would be productive? And he became the most amazing civic leader. And he taught me about how he lived his life in thirds, a third for home, however you define home a third for work, which kind of puts the food on the table, and a third for your community. And it was learning from Jim some of the things I was feeling myself as a volunteer in education, in social services, and in the environment, which are the three areas I tried to do throughout my professional career, that that's where you learn the kind of leadership that really makes you a strong leader. You learn to lead through influence as opposed to learning to lead through power. And it actually was volunteer work that landed me mm. in the job with the administration. Um, two of the supporters of President Obama, one was Gina's predecessor, going back to the first ever head of the EPA, that's Bill Ruckelshaus. Bill and I worked closely together on bringing a business voice to ending extreme global poverty. Uh, so that's a, another sidetrack we could take, but that's how I got to know Bill. And he saw my work there. I was the first chair of a board that we were on together. And then Jerry Grinstein was his close friend. So Bill's a Republican, Jerry's a Democrat. They banded together to support President Obama. So they were asked by the transition team who might be good for these jobs. And they threw my hat in the ring. They used an old resume. It was probably 10 years old at that time, which was back in 2008. Tossed it in the hopper, didn't tell me about it. And I learned about it from a uh, gossip blog in the Seattle Times. Um, <laughs> so, But I would not have had that incredible opportunity to serve with Gina on President Obama's cabinet if I had not been an active volunteer. And uh, if I hadn't been an active volunteer in a number of areas that helped me understand the importance of giving back and the importance of how, how to lead through influence and not power, how to nurture an organization, a nonprofit where everybody has a common interest in the subject and what you're trying to achieve, but may have very different ways of getting there. And so how do you lead an organization where you're listening to those points of view that where, where uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts as opposed to the opposite? So that's a long answer to. No, it's a good, it's a good answer. And it, you know, it's really reflective of the Sally that I know. So I'm 
Uh, I thank you for that. You know, one of the things that, one of the first times that I, I met Sally was uh, when I was actually working in Connecticut, Connecticut and you yeah. were the CEO of, of uh, REI. What was that called? Yeah. TLA, three-letter acronym, Big CEO, REI. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> one thing we had in common, in it, and it's something that I tell the students to think about with leadership, is go where your passion is. Yeah. Go where you, what you care about most. Yeah. And the rest sort of flows from there. Exactly. And I think you and I both share a passion for the outside world. Mm -hmm. And it was important in my world, and I think it's obviously a lot of what you did at DUI was a reflection of your tremendous respect for the outdoor world. Why is it so important? Why is it? Why was it important to you? You know, I was privileged as a child to grow up um, engaged in the outdoors, as as many of my generation were. We were allowed to roam free and to roam farther than we allowed our own children uh, to roam. And actually, there's some scientific research on that, on how s much smaller the world is becoming in terms of what we're allowing children to do. But that uh, connection to the outdoor world shaped very deeply who I am. Uh, I, I show a picture oftentimes when I do slideshows of um, my first two-week camping trip with Mrs. Black. So Mrs. Black was an extraordinary teacher who took you know, a very diverse group. As I look at the, at the picture of all of us kids there, and several of us are still good friends, have been you know, for life, there's a wide diversity. Of, of children, uh, certainly racial diversity, age, we were all pretty much the same, same age, and we had graduate students, and we went out camping for two weeks each summer and got immersed in the natural world, but also in science. And that really shaped me. When I was an engineer working for the oil and gas industry, I'd go to the Wichita Mountains um, National Wildlife Refuge in Oklahoma near Lawton. Uh, we went and paddled the Buffalo River in Arkansas, even though those were not things that were typically you know, done by anybody that I worked around. And when you and I met Gina, one of the things that impressed me most about Gina, and I remember this really deeply, was you know she was in Connecticut and she created a program, was like, like as I recall, like a treasure hunt, going to state parks all over Connecticut uh, with families to connect families to the state parks and also to the natural world. I believe deeply that the best classroom is the one that has no walls. It's, and the best teacher is really Mother Nature or the creator or however you like to, to characterize the natural world around us that can teach us so much. And when, when I was a child, that unlocked my curiosity. And I see today, I have a, a little grandson who's three years old. He just left yesterday, actually. He was visiting me for a few days. And, you know, he's growing up completely as a digital native. And from six months old, he would be able to get into my iPhone, get to my pictures, <laughs> and swipe through the pictures, or delete the pictures, or, you know. <laughs> and, and then he started taking, like, pictures of everything around. And that is the world that he grows up in. And it was a magnet for his attention when he was, when he was an infant. So intuitive that it draws him in, and very scary as a grandparent or as a parent mm -hmm. on how do you um, enable these children to explore on their own? Uh, and that, that became a concern of mine actually at REI uh, too, as I thought what my experiences I had are being more and more limited for all kinds of reasons. Richard Louvre, who we both know and know of, who wrote Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, took a lot of research, perhaps done by some of you or um, the students here and the faculty here and other places that said, 
we are uh, creating all kinds of barriers for children exploring. When I was a regent at the University of Washington, we had a crisis going on in 2002 where we had sort of an epidemic in depression and suicide risk among the freshman class. And as we dug into it, it's that children didn't know how to organize themselves, children. Students didn't know how to organize themselves because they hadn't learned those activities when they were children. And a lot of that comes yeah. from that incidental outdoor play. play. So that's, yeah. you know, very much shaped um, my own thinking about how do I bring solutions to the table as the CEO of REI? How do we bring the outdoors into children's everyday lives when they're l living in urban areas? How do we put the outdoors and nature on the radar of many parts of our uh, communities that are underrepresented uh, in, in the outdoors? How do we create safe parks and open spaces within an easy walk? Uh, how do we advocate for those things? What's our role as a business in doing that? And certainly at Interior, we had a pretty big platform to make progress. Well, that's what I was going to talk. How did that get reflected in, in a couple of the things that you're most proud of that you did at DOI in order to protect some of the beautiful natural landscapes that we have and obviously the critters that rely on those, yeah. including us? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I learned at REI is, is um, that the kind of immersive experience I had as a child made a big difference in my life, but like a one-shot deal, like a field trip, doesn't work as well. I, one of my colleagues and I created, while at REI, something called PEAK, which stands for Promoting Environmental Awareness in Kids. And we actually had a backpack, and it was full of curriculum, Spanish and English, uh, elementary school, middle school age, full of fun stuff, including like a tent and some boots and, you know, and, and uh, age-appropriate games that kids could play. And we worked with we, we reached half a million children with this program at REI over the, um, the eight years that I was CEO or the 13 years in total that I was there. But we realized that it wasn't sticking in the way that multi-day trips would stick. And so I, I took some of those learnings from REI and, you know, we had supported as a business like uh, inner city outings for the Sierra Club and uh, YMCA's bold boys outdoor leadership development and girls, girls outdoor leadership development that were these multi-day trips, particularly reaching into underserved communities that were under, and underrepresented communities. But when we got to Interior, it's like I, one of my highest priorities was to create a youth initiative to say, and I, and I browbeat my, my predecessor, Ken Salazar, in 2009 saying, mm -hmm. you're doing the stimulus package. You know, FDR did the CCC let's do the CCC 2.0 and let's put millions of young people to work on public lands that's going to give them a connection to place that they've never had before and an appreciation for the natural world they've never had before and it'll catapult it forward. Well, let's just say that that wasn't his priority. He worked a lot on renewable energy, which was also really important and I kept his work going, but we didn't use the stimulus in that way. So when I got to DOI, I said, let's raise private money. I don't have enough money in the budget to do this uh, without the support of others, if we're going to magnify the program, if CCC, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps under Roosevelt, was a government-supported program, CCC 2.0 is going to have to be privately supported. So we raised $20 million, and, and we created a continuum of engagement that went from play to learn to serve to work. The concept being that you got to get kids outdoor, outside playing again. So you're all in public health. Just like kids play, okay? Advocate for recess, write prescriptions. You know, so we've got a doctor in the room I'm going to be talking to later, and I'm sure other medical practitioners write prescriptions for kids that 
uh, are ADHD, are uh, overweight, just to, to encourage their parents to let them play outside in an unstructured way. So we worked with 51 cities across the country, a national partner in the YMCA, funded largely by a grant from American Express, and the YMCA convened all the youth-serving organizations in those 51 cities to say, how do we get more kids in our cities out playing? So that was roughly 10 million children touched by that program. The next thing was learn, and we created Every Kid in a Park. Free pass for every fourth grader in America to get out into their public lands. And the idea was, these are your public lands. And if you feel that you know, the entry fees are a barrier to going to national parks or wildlife refuges or otherwise, this is your ticket to take your entire family and entire carload into uh, national parks and for not just national parks, wildlife refuges, you know, um, Army Corps of Engineers and Bureau of Reclamation Reservoirs. Uh, NOAA had a program on marine sanctuaries. And they geared the curriculum across the federal government to the fourth grade, which is a really critical age. And we worked with Department of Education on that. So, uh, you know, millions of young kids uh, signing up for that in fourth grade every year. It's a rite of passage. We hope that that will continue for decades mm -hmm. to come. Next is learn, and uh, uh, excuse me, that, that was learn. Next is um, serve, facilitated a lot of young people doing civilian uh, conservation corps kind of work, which is work, but they reached into communities and got a lot more volunteers. A million volunteers a year on public lands is the number we had. It was triple what it was when we started. And then work, putting 100,000 young people to work in jobs on public lands through this program, which is not the millions that I hope for, but and a number of nonprofits that work in this space come to me saying, thank you for what you did because we're now on the map, we're launched, we've got business support, and we're in much better shape to see that this continues from where we were before. So that was, you know, really helpful. I even got uh, President Obama and Mrs. Obama to host a camp out on the White House lawn, which <laughs> took me about nine years to do because <laughs> I'd been working on them from when I was at REI. Busy schedule. Yeah, right. <laughs> And then they had a thunderstorm in the middle of the night, and the girls had to bail, and they spent the night in the Indian Treaty Room in the Eisenhower Executive That's Office That's a building. nice room. <laughs> That's a nice room. It's a hard floor, I, I assume campfires were out of the question. <laughs> it's a whole different story saying how my colleague got all the camp chairs and the lanterns through the White House security. Let's just say he had to unpack every box and repack every box by himself. It took him four hours. So, yeah. No marshmallows. Well, other than that, it seemed to me you made a a pretty neat transition from the private sector to the public sector, and you didn't let things like no money get in your way. How did, how did it feel to make that transition? What difference you know, it, did you see? What was most notable? Because one of the questions that I get from students is, is it a good time to go into public service? And it, it's never a bad time to go into public service, in exactly my opinion. Right. So exactly right. you know, tell us, what different, I mean, what was the difference? How did you, how'd you make that adjustment? Well, let me start with uh, there's, there's two big areas of difference that were frustrating coming from the private sector. One had to do with the budget. So, uh, I mean, where do you start? Said, enough said. Right? We could, we could go for it. <laughs> and and I, I like to say to the people that I work with at Interior, look, we are in the forever business. Our job as stewards of our land and waters and upholding trust and treaty responsibilities to Native Americans is um, forever. It's not for a short period of time. And yet our budget, I mean, we had one year of the 
of the years that we uh, that we served on the president's cabinet, we had one year of semi-normal budget, which was 2015, as I recall. We had the shutdown in 2013, and we had the first year of the two-year budget deal negotiated by Patty Murray and Paul Ryan in 2014, but we got it really late, so it didn't translate down until later. So 15 was the only normal year, and then 16 was a continuing resolution, and 17 has been the same. That's a crazy way to run the forever business with no ability to sort of plan for the future in the way people expect you to, but it's still critical. Plus, our budgets always competed with one another. They did, that's true. As if we were in a competition, because yeah. yeah. we had this little section of the budget where it was just us, and they'd give a pot of money to both. Yeah, that's And then right. they'd bother about who got it. We didn't bother. No. We it, just said, this is what we both need. Right. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, right? Right. So very frustrating, and, and no opportunities to get into, you know, I mean, it, 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 spit in the ocean is what our collective budgets were relative oh, to the federal budget. And yet, yes, they put us in competition, which is not fair. So that's one craziness. Okay, the other uh, really interesting aspect is around risk. Mm -hmm. So in business, you are encouraged to take risks. And you take risks and you learn from them. You know, my, the bank I worked for way back when in the mid-'80s thought, let's try and put a bank branch in a grocery store. Nobody's going to want a bank when they're buying their lettuce. I mean, come on, that's crazy. And the answer was they weren't ready. And we lost a bunch of money on that. But you know what? All of us, it's like we rely on grocery stores. And the ATMs generally are like, do you want an extra 20 bucks with your groceries? That's how we do it now. It's a little ahead of its time, but learned lessons from that. Gina was, her team was doing this little cleanup of a mine in Colorado called the Gold King Mine. And uh, really good experience for myself. Really excellent. I know. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> that was the one time I got to experience your committee <laughs> cognizance in Congress yeah, rather than know, my I own. Know. Oh gosh. Well, at any rate, yeah, <laughs> we won't get down. That well, we're now we're no. on TV, so we can't no. say what's really on our mind. But no. <laughs> so the contractor doing the work between the state of Colorado and the EPA, trying to clean up uh, an abandoned mine site had an unfortunate situation where the mine blew out and orange toxic water flowed into the Animas River, the San Juan River, ultimately in the Colorado River, and everybody wanted Gina's head on a platter. How could EPA do this, right? So what they don't say is that there's actually 300 million gallons a year that leach into the water supply that's killed the rivers in the immediate area of that because of hundreds of abandoned mines. So the EPA is trying to bring its expertise to bear in cleaning up just one of those sites. And so roughly three days worth of the toxic emissions spills in one spill because, you know, they made a mistake. They removed a little bit too much overburden and the, and the, the orange fluid blew out. So three days' worth of toxic spill was released basically in a matter of an hour or so. <laughs> they wanted blood. They wanted Gina's head. They wanted, uh, they wanted both of us to testify together. What's my role? Well, we were doing the independent third-party analysis of what actually happened. Uh, as I said, I can't testify with Gina because we're doing the independent analysis. So, I mean, I'm happy to testify after, which they made me do. And they asked why I wasn't firing Gina McCarthy. And I said, well, actually, Gina works for President Obama, <laughs> as do I. <laughs> However, she you know, would have fired me. Never, never. But the point is, you're trying to do the right thing for the American people. Yeah. Stuff happens. 
uh, yeah, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Oh, they shouldn't have removed so much overburden. They should have figured out what the water levels were in the well. They're all, okay, fine. You know, these are human beings trying to do the best job they can. But the biggest issue is we got abandoned mines all over this country. The EPA is trying to do its job in helping states clean them up. There's not enough money to do it. And so instead of saying, how do we address abandoned mine land reclamation and water quality issues, uh, they go after this one incident and try and vilify GINA and the EPA. That's what happens when you take risk yeah, in government true. service. It's yeah. very hard, but it's we essential. We were there because the state of Colorado didn't want to accept the risk. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they asked us to help, and, and honestly, it's one of those situations, you're absolutely right, where you just can't win. No. Because Congress doesn't give authority to actually a responsibility for the people who made money from that mine to actually clean it. Exactly. It ends up just being abandoned, and it's up to the public, and, you know, you, you just have to keep doing what you can do to, to be responsive to the needs of states, but yeah. sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and I, you know, in that case, the citizens of Colorado, citizens of the United States, want to have these lands cleaned up. And I think politicians that, you know, try and point fingers at people like Gina or people on her team or on my team are uh, using sh sort of short-term sound bites for political gain without addressing the real underlying issue. Uh, the public servants that work in these areas, and this gets to what's positive about public service, is you have the ability to make a difference that is so much bigger than you do in the private sector. So much bigger. Uh, you can shape policies. You can have impact. Um, you get to have impact that is that, that may span generations. And so you're not going to get that in the private sector. And you're going to have these political swings, and we got a big old swing going on right now. I th I'm sure you've noticed. Um, but that is also creating a groundswell of support for public servants and a groundswell of support for the importance of the common good that I think will result in a backlash. It's, it's very difficult to watch it happen over the short run, but it is energizing people. We saw a bit of it in the last election. Uh, we're seeing it in the I'm seeing it in the interests of the Kennedy School uh, students in uh, matching what they're, I mean, they, they come to my study groups on a voluntary basis. The six students that support me directly are all volunteers. Uh, nobody's getting any credit, and I don't have to grade papers, which is great. Um, but all of this is um, has sort of the the interest has increased in how can I make a difference. So I think that part of our democracy has these swings. In public service, you can have a much bigger impact. And the people that I work with, incredible. And I'm sure you have the same story. I mean, just incredible. Well, I know we don't have uh, much time left, Sal, just a couple of minutes, but I did want to thank you personally for a couple of things. I know you dealt with incredibly difficult issues with tremendous grace, issues on endangered species, you know, which were never easy, stream flow issues. Um, and I know we're all worried about making sure that we maintain those, but I wanted to especially thank you about the work you did with the tribes. Now, I know we don't have enough time to cover it, but it is an issue in and of itself that if the American people sort of understood what our responsibility was and how much we are falling short in this country to actually address tribal issues, but you did remarkable work, Sally. And you were a great partner in that yeah. effort. 
it was it was incredible the work that the White House did, and I really hope that that continues. But we should wrap it up, and I should thank you for being here, and thank everybody for joining both in person and online. And I want to make sure that that uh, folks continue to to check out the leadership series because it's not just important for the students, but students everywhere. I think to hear about what makes great leaders like Sally Jewell, what gives her her spunk and her passion and her energy to be able to tackle issues that are so difficult and come out just as happy, if not happier, than when she started. So it's challenging, but it's worth it. And next week, you, uh, I'm sorry, on uh, November 29th is the next leadership um, series uh, event. And we're going to have Dr. Soraya Dalil, um, who is here as a fellow. Um, she is uh, from Afghanistan. And she was the Minister of Public Health there. And she's going to be exciting to listen to. So it'll be wonderful to have you back again and tuning in. So Sally, thanks for everything. Thanks for all of your service, both in the public and private sector. And most of all, thanks for your passion and your friendship. Thanks. You're thanks. a wonderful person to have served with. Thank you, Professor McCarthy. And thanks to all of you for your commitment to public health. My mom was a nurse practitioner. She worked her career at Planned Parenthood. My father uh, grew up in socialized medicine in the UK. Uh, and uh, practice medicine in Seattle. They both um, total proponents for the work that you do, and I, I just can't express how important it is. And just don't forget to do some of those prescriptions for nature. <laughs> Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Ellen. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.